Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Full Casting Crew Podcast. I'm Jason Silo, your host. I'm joined today by another Jason, my friend Jason Blumklotz. And today we're going to talk a little bit about a documentary concert film called The Grateful Dead Movie. Don't be scared. I know. Two 50-year-old guys talking about The Grateful Dead for an hour and a half. But within this, we're not just going to geek out about the music and the band and the documentary. We're going to talk a little bit about the film as a document of its time, 1974 San Francisco. There's a lot of wonderful things and aspects of the movie that will speak to you, regardless of whether you're a fan of the band or not. So if you're dead curious, check it out. You might enjoy it. Just a little background on the film to give you context. So as you know, The Grateful Dead grew out of the San Francisco uh, Haight-Ashbury scene in 1965. And by 1974, the band had pretty much been touring relentlessly for the better part of 10 years. And they were ready to take a break, if not break up. And the idea was hatched by Jerry Garcia, lead guitarist and eminence grease of The Grateful Dead at the time, to document live performances from a five-night run in October 1974 at the legendary San Francisco Music Hall, Winterland, run by famous rock promoter Bill Graham. The band heading into these shows didn't know if these were the last shows they would ever play. And so the proceedings were kind of awkward in that sense, that I think there's an air of not understanding quite what might happen. So that was the situation. And in typical Grateful Dead fashion, who often undertook fantastically contrived happenings, such as, let's go play at the pyramids in Egypt, or sure, we'll appear on stage at Woodstock, or let's document five nights of concerts with multiple cameras in a way that's never really been done before. Of course, it cost hundreds of thousands of dollars more than it was ever intended to, and it became a bit of a boondoggle that occupied a lot of Jerry Garcia's time over the three-year period that the dead was on a hiatus between 1974 and 1977, thus kind of negating the very reason for the hiatus, to take a break, to try and do some different things. However, the film did come out, and it remains a singular document of the band's fans circa 1974, and an essential capturing of the band at one of its peaks. And that's kind of where we pick up the conversation between myself and my friend Jason about the Grateful Dead movie. It's funny, like one of the things in the movie that I think is so funny is it in focusing so much on the audience shots, you really get to see like the the whole range of ways that people were and are into the band reflected in the crowd shots. Right. Yeah, and, totally. and I think that's one of the great strengths of the movie, even though you know, as we kind of chatted about before recording in revisiting the movie, even though it's really important to my Grateful Dead fandom and I think anyone from our era's fandom, because it's certainly one of the few things you could watch and see at the time, sort of yeah. pre-DVD. You have to remember, you couldn't see these guys visually. And I think your your Pink Floyd episode is really instructive in that way. Like how much how important these things were. They were these portals, you know, in you know, right. in the, these weird, you know, uh, American wastelands sometimes where you just couldn't, you know, like every, and that's the thing that is, I think such the revolution is like the past is no longer gone. Like everything mm. is present all the time. Um, and if it isn't present, you can go find it and make it present. And I, I don't know if that's good or bad. It's just so different. And I think you had kids like us who 
in our search for whoever we were fell into whichever groups we fell into. And the identity of those groups was about pop culture, the music you were into, the TV shows, the movies you were into. And as you said, also what you weren't into. And because you're a teenager, probably more what you claimed to hate at the time than what you claimed to love, what you were against as opposed to what you were into. You know, it's funny. I mean, I think in our experience, like being into the music for me was, was, was a twofold experience. There was the, there was the listening experience, which was, as you said, a room based communal listening experience, you know, with, with long stretches of active listening broken up, of course, by other comestible activities and hijinks and laughter, but there were large patches of listening. And then also, I think every group of friends has that person, certainly with the dead, who is the archive master, who's the person who collects and has all the tapes and turns you on and, right. and tells you stuff. And in our group, that was Chuck, who was by far the, the master archivist and knew everything. You know, And again, this is at a time, 84, 85, 86, where you don't really have access to information unless you get specific books or magazines that happen to tell you or show you things about these acts that you're interested in. Because at the time, if you were interested in pop music, sure, you could turn on MTV and you could see, you know, what, what people looked like and what they wore. But if you were into the dead in the mid eighties, you couldn't really do that. They weren't going to be on MTV. Um, And there weren't that many books even. There weren't that many books. I mean, we had, I know Chuck had, and I had this soft cover paperback book that was very good. I wish I had a copy now. I got to look for it again. It was a, it was a very well-written just synopsis of everything and had photos from all the eras. And so that was something that like you perused that, you know, you read it page by page and analyzed the photos and did all that stuff. But, you know, you needed that guy. Um, You needed the Chuck who made you the tapes and turned you on to various aspects of the music and came to know what you liked and would use that kind of entry point to get you into something else about the band that, you know, maybe he thought you should appreciate, but you didn't yet. And I I wish that I had kept all of the tapes that Chuck had made me in this era because, you know, you also had the calligraphy markers and he would do the covers really intricately and put, put unique artwork on everyone. And, and that was part of it. And I think if you're as a, as my guest on the pod, Michael Chernis said, who's also a big deadhead, you know, you had to do the work. It's a band there. You have to do the work. And that's part of the reward is to understand what the hell's going on. And at the yeah. time, you know, there's no real way to understand what's going on. Even just listening to the music, you're not really going to understand what's going on until you have somebody kind of put it in a context for you. And that kind of, right. I mean, I hate to use the term, but it is sort of a handed down kind of at that point, oral tradition of like, yeah, this is the band. This is what happens. This is how the concerts are organized. You know, you have to take the good with the bad, this concept that it's, it's not perfect, but it's, it's trying to achieve something. And then of course, many, many years later, you know, in later fandom, when you did have more access to books and information, you know, then my personal fandom takes a different turn where I'm really, it's one of the things I'm really interested in and I read a lot about and, you know, go well beyond the music into the lives of the people as much as you can know about, you know, what's going on. And even to this day, and I mean, that's what's been amazing 
is that with Dead and Company kind of emerging from the post, you know, yeah. Fare Thee Well shows with uh, Trey Anastasio from Fish, uh, Dead and Company with John Mayer has become by far the best iteration of these songs that anyone in our generation has ever seen performed live by any iteration of the dead because the quality of the playing kind of finally matches what it was in that pretty narrow window that I think for me is defined from really 1971 to 1974. Although, as I said before, there's many, many great shows from every era. I give the 77 stuff also, I, I give it praise. And I like it a little earlier. I like 69. I include Live Dead and that whole... Um, uh, that whole pig pen era. The pig pen. And like the, but the end, like, I mean, and it's funny because you were talking about this. It was just making me think about how you, you the, the band is evolving in your mind, but you also are now, you have so much more information so you can see the evolution of the band itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because you have access to more information. Like, I've listened to a ton of like 66, 67 stuff. And you realize like the band wasn't really the band yet. Like they were still. Oh yeah. Not at all. And like, it's really 68 when, you know, and, and actually Portland was incredibly important that where I live because the show here at the crystal ballroom is like, the, like basically the day of the day before uh, Bob wrote the other one and they played it here and that's on the Anthem of the Sun tapes. And like, you mean like, that's when I think they became mm-hmm. a band, like, you know, like, a, 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 you know, a band in the sense of like, you're going to remember what they're doing um, in a, in a, you know, for the ages. Cause the music itself just is so intrinsically interesting and high quality and the writing got really good. And, um, uh, you know, so like that, like you said, like all this, you know, this, but in 1986, 87 that all that is just a mystery to you you know like you have <laughs> you know it's you know like like you're looking at the pictures you're going wow pig pin got skinny you know <laughs> like you mm-hmm. know or you know like you're you're it's like it's like hieroglyphics almost you know you're mm-hmm. like trying to decipher information from these there's such a limited amount of of and the oral history stuff too is fascinating like you said because it's being transferred from one person to the next. So it's like telephone, right? It's like shit's getting mm-hmm. left off. Stuff's getting amplified. You know, it's just, it's so interesting how you develop that. Um, yeah. I think the context of it is what's what we live in now, which is, which is right. interesting because you can know so much more. Uh, you can, as I do, loyally subscribe to the Dave Picks series and get specific concerts that are released and remastered with the latest yeah. technology, but that also have very detailed notes about, placing the show in the context of something. And, and I love right. all that stuff and I collect yeah. all that stuff. So that's still great. But let, let's talk about the movie because as a movie podcast, many people listening to this probably are not deadheads or have much interest in the band whatsoever. So we are here to talk about the Grateful Dead movie, which is a very readily available movie, most notably on YouTube. The band is making it, making it available on YouTube right now for free and asking that people who watch it make a donation uh, to a charity that's attached right to the YouTube player. So if you're interested in checking out a little bit of the band or a little bit of the movie, I guess my pitch for it for non-deadheads would be it's a great document of its era because unlike most concert documentaries, let's contrast it to the other concert documentary we've done here on the podcast, Pink Floyd Live at Pompeii, most notable for not having any fans in attendance and really focusing on the band and the music is great for that. 
the Grateful Dead movie focuses more on the audience and the fans almost than many, many other concert documentaries I could ever think of. And I think that actually, to me, as a, again, a connoisseur, snob, whatever you want to use term of the music. Aficionado. Aficionado yeah. would be putting it politely. I don't think much of the, the movie as a concert. It's not a, it's not a show I would choose to listen to. It doesn't have superlative yeah. versions of really any of the songs that are there. It has some highlights, uh, but like most things in Grateful Dead history, whenever the stage had stakes or was big, whether it's Woodstock or this series of shows, which were supposed to kick off a three-year hiatus of the band performing live, uh, usually they did drop the ball in the, in the performance when it kind of quote-unquote mattered the most. And this is, I think, an example of that because, you know, you're filming three or four 16 millimeter film crews for four or five nights uh, at a concert. And you're, you're, you have a lot of expectations and a lot of money being spent. And uh, so for the music, it's interesting just because this, the playing is perfectly adequate. It's great. If you're not a super fan of the band, you'll, you'll tap your toe and enjoy uh, some of the great, you know, boogie band song highlights that are featured in the playlist, but what's really a treat is just to look at the footage of San Francisco in 1974 and the Deadheads both in and out of the concert. And I think that's what the real treat of this is, is it's a document of the scene at the time. And to their credit, they spent as much time in and, in and around the crowd as they did on stage. <laughs> you just wait, man. They promised that they would play tonight. <laughs> Shit, man. Great dead. Dead. Tell me about the dead. The dead, man. Gotta be the best. No doubt about it, man. Where would the dead are? You see the people. You know? Huh? The sound system, man. The music of Jerry Garcia. He's got to They've been together for the last 10 years. They've been together longer than almost any group I know. You know, they've got it, you know. They're the best. Yeah. They're the best. Besides Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I'm caught up here. See, I tried to get in. You know, the Grateful Dead. Sure, I have a ticket. You want to see? Well, you can't stand right I know, I'm just trying to get my space together so that I can go into the show. I just came from a phone call. <laughs> it's always this, a group of the same faces, basically. And then there's new people keep coming in over the years, and then older people phase off, you know, advance on to different trips, and you don't see their faces as much. But it's it's like a continuous trip. Right, Greg? <laughs> <laughs> the first concert I went to was at Dead at Fillmore. With, it was on a Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock or so. I don't know, when they used to play afternoons at Fillmore with the airplane and Big Brother. And that used to be really big. I mean, you never get to see those three at once. They used to do it every weekend. <laughs> see the dead out the Panhandle in Golden Gate Park. But those were the old days. It's definitely a love letter. Like, you know, yeah. you, you get this like Jerry but then you also realize when I didn't know this when I when I first saw it I saw it in high school and I hated it because I didn't the again I didn't 
the music didn't jump. And so I was just kind of like, Oh, um, but when you, when you learn about it afterwards, you realize like, like they were going to tour the movie as yeah. like a new, well, <laughs> like, you know, um, yeah, the, the, it was supposed to fill the gap in the band touring. And yeah. instead it took, it took the entire gap to finish the movie. So it never did what it was supposed to do. <laughs> In fact, which is so, so perfectly Grateful Dead, too. Oh, I love, well, the best part about it to me is that it was so um, it was so expensive and over budget that it kind of almost helped push them back out onto the road. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like they had to actually go pay the bills because they. Well, and I think they also released five or six records over the span of those three years in an attempt to pay for the movie because it became such a right. boondoggle. Right. Right, exactly. So, you know, I think the yeah. Grisman record with Jerry, the Ned Login Sea Stones album. There's a bunch of like ancillary dead albums and dead player right. albums, right. Uh, a couple solo albums that came out, which were, I think they entered into a distribution agreement with, you know, Columbia Records or somebody in order to get this money to finish what became this, this three-year kind of <laughs> boondoggle of cash, which again is very it's very Grateful Dead organization once you start reading about the band and its business practices such as they were. No one was thinking clearly, let's say. No. And that's another sort of uh, trope of the band, right? Is like these, like, you know, these, these boondoggles. That let's they, go to Egypt. Right, exactly. You know, <laughs> like, let's play at the pyramids. Yeah. Um, Sounds yeah, good. Like, whenever they tried to do something, kind of fucked everything up. It's just when they just like, like, yeah. I mean, the whole, Thing was done mostly as a kind of response to like, well, sh you know, we don't want to be cops and, you know, we just want to, um, you know, and people, you know, we don't see it as a problem and like, what, you know, so let's just mm -hmm. figure it out. Let's just, you know, like it wasn't thought through. Um, and that's sort of like, to me, like almost the metaphor of the music, right? The music mm -hmm. is improvisational. It's not like it's when they played the best, when they were doing the best was when they weren't thinking too much and they just were just being who they mm -hmm. were and letting it rip. And they had that incredible chemistry when they could mm -hmm. get out of their own way. It was just remarkable. Um, mm -hmm. and so the movie, I, by the way, the movie I read was that, um, that these Boston bankers, one of whom's daughter was a, um, a deadhead, like were the guys who helped finance the movie. Mm -hmm. So, they brought Jerry in, um, you know, and, and he kind of, you know, they were, the guy was asking him like the stupidest questions about pop music. I had nothing mm -hmm. to do with that. And, uh, Jerry just was laughing like, Oh my God, these guys will just give us whatever we want. Yeah. Yeah, up, exactly. Taking a bath on it. Like they, I think they got like 30 <laughs> cents on the dollar for the, what they loaned the dead, yeah. you know, cause there was nothing there to be had. Um, well, I think that speaks to, you know, what you were talking about. I mean, the music at its best, is, and I'm not talking about the song structure or anything of that regard, the, the body of songs is what it is. It's part of the American song catalog and I think will forever be part of that. But the, when the music is working, it's incredibly complicated. And I think if you, if you know what you're listening to and what to listen for, like many things, like, any, like a film that you love, you know, that has so much more going on in the making of it than most viewers are really able to absorb yet all of the stuff going on is what makes the film absorbing even if you're unaware of the attention paid to all the various details and i think the music of the dead when it's really working and particularly now and this is what i really enjoy about dead and company is also just living in an era when audio either 
in a couch tour sense at your house through your headphones is so sophisticated and so good that the detail with which you're able to listen to individual players within a, an, a mix coming through a streaming service is so good. Live concert audio at most venues is so astoundingly good compared to what it was in the mid 80s or the early 90s. The ability to hear what's going on once you kind of do the work of understanding what's going on is that's for me where the real reward lies. And so it's not, it's within the interplay that the magic happens as a listener. And I think that's also why, you know, when you know a lot about what was going on within and around the band, it, it does get in the way of my appreciation of some things later on, because I'm aware that, you know, you can't really listen to each other when you all have pretty significant drug problems which is yeah. something that emerges in the course of the history of the band. And that's kind of, as you get into the later seventies and in through the eighties and in through the nineties, you know, there's varying degrees of that problem coming in and, and the listening kind of stops and shuts down. Yeah. Uh, but in this era of the Grateful Dead movie, we're not there yet. You know, we're still 1974. Uh, it's really a, it's a peak, you know, this, this few year window, uh, so many remarkable Concerts are recorded, Europe 72, uh, Sunshine Daydream, also 72. You know, those are, those are peak superlative examples of the music. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I think you're totally right. And it's, and it's funny that you mentioned that, like, they, and they pioneered all that technology. Like, mm -hmm. from the very beginning, that band was so focused on sound. Um, and the movie actually is one of the few documents of, that you know crazy the the, the wall whatever. the wall of sound yeah in the early 70s for instance uh we developed a, a sound system that was called the wall of sound and it was based off the linear array principle and i can explain to explain that to you briefly just imagine a balloon and then imagine that to be this dispersion pattern pattern of a speaker then you put a bunch of them, stack them up together, and then squeeze them. They'll all, they'll all spread out like that. And this is basically what will happen if you put a bunch of speakers on top of each other, and and they'll they'll propagate each other. So we built a system whereby um, there was no there was no uh, stage right or stage right or stage left. Uh, uh, PA cluster, we just had uh, stacks of speakers behind us, uh, each each behind the uh, the musician who was playing. And I had a stack about, oh, 25 feet high, 30 maybe, and uh, our bass player had a stack of speakers that was probably 45 feet high, maybe 50, and it was up there. And most of the, most of the sound from these speakers uh, we couldn't hear. We could only hear the ones right behind us. But the, the stuff that was over our heads went back and could reach the back of the hall probably better than anything that's been developed since then. Um, which really only, and it's funny, you talk to every hippie and they always tell you, I saw the wall of sound. You're like, 1971. You're like, well, it wasn't the wall of sound. Yeah, but, I don't think you saw it there, bro. Exactly. I mean, I mean, trust me, the number of old deadheads that I've you give you the craziest bullshit stories. Well, have I, you seen the guy who built a 
uh, scale I, replica. I, I sent you the thing because I had just, you have been Amazing. 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 But, yes. But, but what was so cool about that too is that here's another weird aspect of that band. I mean, to me, they are the greatest American music band band i guess i would say not artists you know there's other people i would put up above them but like like as a group like the the the, the culmination of of musical talent songwriting mm-hmm. um just off the beaten path cultural mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. shit that they did um yeah uh, i just i just i can't think of any band that i'm more interested in as the in their entirety in in the in in america when did you first start going to the concerts? I guess about 1967 in New York. I remember the Fillmore in Hartford, Connecticut, and L.A. and uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and Philadelphia, and uh, just a whole bunch of places. And all when all the uh, acid things were going on, all the heavy kind of generational changes, and uh, just everything that was happening in the country, they seemed to really be... Uh, reflecting that and so was I so it's really meant a lot to me that in the movie I think is the love letter is it's got all of those aspects in there you know uh, it's got you know it's got the the building the set and you can see the wall going up and 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 and, and but at the same time of course that also was one of the reasons they were going broke and touring was a pain in the ass it wasn't fun because they were just lugging around so, so much stuff and they had to have all, you know, it's, you know, they, it's, they're the creator, like you said, like they're the creator of their own problems. Um, and yet that, th- those experiments led to such huge breakthroughs in, uh, you know, in concert sound. And I mean, it, it, you know, and, and like today, the fact that you can sit on your couch and have a amazing experience mm-hmm. um, is part and due to their explorations of. Sure. And I, that's, I mean, I think it's pretty awesome that one band can have all of that um, in, you know, inside of them. Uh, yeah, you know, I think that the, the technical side would be an amazing documentary. I wish, you know, oh, yeah. Maybe, yeah. I'll, maybe I'll have to do it if no one's going to do it. Because between Owsley Stanley, you know, who was the Dead's audio engineer and also a pretty major figure in the manufacturing of LSD through the time, major cultural figure and also just an obsessive audio engineer type who built this enormous PA system, the wall of sound, which, you know, (laughs) was typically, typically Grateful Dead in that it just was such a monstrous undertaking and required so much massive trucking and engineering to set up in pursuit of the perfection of the sound. Because again, that's the that's the thing that's going on for the band is the ability to hear themselves and each other. So, yeah, I think the technical stuff, and also I think you were joking about Phil's giant uh, sheepy bass strap uh, on display in the Grateful Dead movie because this bass that he's playing in the era made by Alembic, I believe, which is another you know Grateful Dead offshoot company that made instruments and audio engineering uh, advancements, you know, this bass that he's playing probably had to weigh 50, 60 pounds. I mean, it's got, it's got 16 knobs, it's got processors, it's got everything in it. And he has to wear this massive sheepskin shoulder (laughs) to just wear it on stage, which is hilarious. Uh, and all this is on, all this is on display in the Grateful Dead movie, uh, which you could see. 
And like, and, and, and then, so yeah. And he's, remember he's explaining like how every string can be played one single. (laughs) Every string has its own speaker column, of course. This has lots of different filters on it and the capability of switching from one kind of sound, like the same sound coming from all the speakers to one string coming from each of half of one of these stacks. So, in other words, each string from four different sets, so it bounces around, depending on how I play. I'm talking to you like you're a person, because you look like a person, even with that camera on. absurd like that's so spinal tap it's it's not it, it is it is uh, definitely and but then he starts playing remember he starts riffing and it's like this incredible like black sabbath like i'm like oh my god yeah and then the camera starts feeding back into the bass and he's like oh it's you come on and, you know and they start kind of grooving with the camera and that's like that's such a dead moment yeah it's and, and it's it's exactly it's like it's like it's absurd and then he turns it into this sublime thing i was just like that is amazing like um, and that, that's what I love about that band is you just, you know, I haven't seen that movie probably since high school. Yeah. I got that. Well, and also, you know, you mentioned the watching it in high school, and not being into it, to be fair. I think that what we would have all first watched was it was released on VHS in 1981 and it was yeah. released on VHS off of a pretty terrible transfer from some version right. of the film. So the sound was as horrible as it could possibly yeah. be and has only really been improved upon in later DVD and Blu-ray releases. And I think what they're streaming on YouTube is a pretty good, pretty good recording of it, but it, but it doesn't bear any relation to the clarity of the recording that they released of the Vanita show, which if anyone here is curious about checking out the Grateful Dead and you wanted to check out one show, I would just check out the, Sunshine Daydream show from August 27th, 1972, Vanita, Oregon. Um, because I think for my tastes, that's probably the greatest recorded show ever. Uh, the sound Ooh. quality is, there's no other, there's no other recording that sounds as good as this one. Uh, and the playing, you know, matches the quality of the recording, which is not typical. Sometimes you have really crispy, amazing soundboard recordings, but the show isn't really that great. Sometimes the show is amazing, but all that exists is an audience recording and not a soundboard recording. And that's a whole other aspect of dead fandom that we don't need to go down. But uh, But, but, if you're going to check one out, that's a great one to explore. And the movie is a good introduction to the band. But also I thought the the multi-part, uh, docu-series that Amazon uh, did, I thought was actually pretty good. It's, it's not for the, it's not for the obsessive expert per se, who's going to be very familiar with most everything that's in that, but it's a really good capsule of, of most of what we're talking about, even if some of it kind of glosses over out of necessity. Right. And I think, uh, yeah. And I, I think that show is a great example of 
the dead, just having a community, having um, these relationships that, that matter to them and being open to anything. And, you know, when you're like that as an artist, greatness can just like, absolutely you mean the Vanita, the Vanita show or the, uh... yeah, yeah, the Vanita show. You see, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, they get called and, Hey man, we got to save the yogurt. Okay. got to save the yogurt creamery. Very important. (laughs) Right. But I mean, it was the relationships, right. That they had built. We have to lose $200,000 and to do so. Like (laughs) (laughs) that's the amazing thing. It's like, we have to bring in the 16 track recorder, uh, truck it all the way out into the middle of nowhere and then end up having the hottest day on record. I think in the history of Oregon at the time, it's like a hundred and something degrees, uh, in Vanita in 72. But then out of such, out of such crucibles, greatness was born. So.
Right. And, and it's funny. I watched uh, festival express last night. Oh yeah. Um, Cause I was like trying to find the, that's Grateful a drunken Dead. mess too, but a it's drunken mess, but what an incredible grateful dead movie because the dead stuff in there is yeah. incredible. like the moment where he turns to Janis Joplin and he's like, man, I loved you since I met you. <laughs> um, and it's just like, I mean, talk about free and it's like, good backstage hang. Yeah. Oh my God. And it's like, so cool to see like them just yeah. being, is completely them mm-hmm. and that camaraderie they had that made, um, I mean, part of the other thing that was so great about them is they were from a community of musicians that really sure. supported each other. And that really pushed the music, I think, to a whole nother level that they were able to, you know, um, I mean, later, I think that obviously changed, but like that documentary is so good about showing that brotherhood. Yeah. And well, and you know, d- d- despite the poor quality of most of the Dylan and the Dead shows of that 87, 88 era, I've always thought that it does show in a good way you know, Dylan's appreciation for the dead and for the songs, because, you know, really ultimately at the end of the day, it's just about the songs, you know, it's not all the cultural stuff and all the, all the, all the drug use and all the, you know, all the accoutrement, you know, that, that's just what it is. But at the end of the day, for any musical entity, it's the body of work and the songs. And you can listen to any of the recent, you know, dead tribute albums that are populated by a who's who of really cool cutting edge you know, bands, um, and hear really interesting interpretations of the songs that hold up, even though they're being recorded, you know, by the war on drugs or the national or any of these acts that sort of have an appreciation for what we're talking about. And so I think Dylan's kind of interest both always felt like, yeah, they came out of the same era and they've been through the same things. And so there's a certain mutual understanding there. And the dead, you know, always turned in really amazing covers of several Dylan tunes that were a part of their repertoire, even to this day, you know, they still perform some of them. And so there always was that thing. It it would be, it would be great to see them perform now if they could, I don't know. Um, I saw Dylan just, well, just before the pandemic shut everything down with his current, current band. And, you know, he's still doing really interesting things and still a really vital concert and a great showman and has a lot in common with kind of where Dead and Company is going um, right. in terms right. of presenting the music anew for, for I wouldn't say a new generation, but it's, 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 it became really big just before the pandemic shut everything down. I think Dead and Company was, you know, has been amongst the top grossing touring acts in America over the yeah. last three or four years and probably would have really peaked uh, on that in 2020 had not Right. The tour has been canceled and they're going to be picking things up again in January in Mexico. Uh, haven't had any announcements of any fall shows, but I'm hoping for some. I think the the community would love to get out and experience the music again. Just keep it going. So it's amazing that it sustains and changes. And it's bizarre for so many people that John Mayer is <laughs> instrumental right. and responsible right. in many ways for... Uh, setting a musical standard because despite his, you know, his personal life tabloid travails of the past, his pop music past, he's a legacy artist. He's, he's a musician of unparalleled talent. And as a guitar player, he's spoken at length about having his mind blown for how much Jerry was doing within the songs on the guitar. 
you know, to play along with Bob Weir, who's such a specific and unique rhythm guitarist. Another shout out to a great documentary. The other one is really worth watching. If no one's seen it, you know, really focuses on Bob. Do you think when you were starting that it would ever evolve into this mystique that has come to surround the group called the Grateful Dead? We didn't think when we were starting. No, we didn't think. <laughs> I've led a kind of an unusual life. I was a 16-year-old kid when I started playing with the Grateful Dead. It was such an amazing adventure. The music was an adventure. The people were an adventurous group. It was impossibly fun. Everybody got a cup of Kool-Aid for a buck and took LSD and we plugged in and we played. California. Our fans were a little bit different. We've got kind of a little gypsy entourage. California. You just had to see it on the golden to see it. Jerry was lead guitarist. I was the rhythm guitarist. I could into it and then be there when he got there with a little surprise for him. If you don't have an ego, you can be the best number two on the planet. And that's kind of what Bob became. It makes him special. Bobby had lots of girlfriends. There's beautiful Bobby surrounded by the Ugly Brothers. <laughs> I was following my bliss music. That's what I'm here for. We had a very strong bond. They say that blood is thicker than water. What we had was thicker than blood. I want to remember it just like this. I'm not proud of anything. I don't trust pride. Life has endless depth to it. Mine has been a long, strange trip. Calling him the other one because, of course, Jerry Garcia is this totemic figure, and rightfully so. But Bob Weir sort of, I wouldn't say toiling in Jerry's shadow all over the years, but certainly being overshadowed. But, of course, now is this wise old sage and the carrier of the flame. And this documentary, like many documentaries about large, complicated, totemic things, in approaching it a little bit from the side it finds a unique way in to tell us more about the whole uh, by focusing on the part. And I think that's one of the strengths of the, the other one, Doc, that, that, that is really, really worth checking out. But to play with him, you know, he doesn't play rhythm guitar like anybody else. And yeah. the interplay uh, is what I really enjoy listening to uh, currently between, between John Mayer and Jeff Shimenti, particularly continuing a long Grateful Dead tradition of the lead guitar player and the keyboard player kind of really having a very interesting interplay back and forth. And there are, there are just moments where these new guys, Jeff Shimenti, John Mayer, Otiel Burbridge on bass, have such technical skill, but are such rhythm and blues players first that their ability to be in the groove, in the pocket, in the music, and mesh with the three you know, legacy members of the band yeah, yeah. is is incredible. One last voice is calling you And I guess it's time you go
and it's uh, it's it's what the band got right in this iteration. That as much as I have appreciation for him, I was never a Fish fan. That wasn't my thing. But um, you know, Trey is not a rhythm and blues person first. No, and so him not coming from that world, despite the incredible accomplishment that he managed in learning the catalog in order to perform with the dead on all the fairly well shows when he did. It's incredible accomplishment, but it didn't really have the thing. It didn't have that swing that dead and company has. And to see it kind of revitalized and, and still having the economic, you know, might, which is, which is, I think what's kind of hilarious about it is this band has done everything wrong business wise for probably 60 years. That's not an exaggeration, you know, like when you read about the band and the business decisions they've made, how they made decisions, this is all coming from a collective 60s kind of, you know, everyone's voice is important in the room. Uh, Right. And then you had, you know, in a figure of like Jerry, you had somebody who kind of willfully abdicated the responsibility that really was on his shoulders. Uh, And he had the luxury and he, he had the luxury and he was enabled in, shrugging off responsibility for a lot of things. Uh, And the band, you know, the dark side of the band is there too. You know, Jerry being forced or not forced because he wanted to, but uh, being put out on the road to provide for this unwieldy organization and some of its business missteps. Uh, You know, that's all part of the story too. But if you, you know, if you like it as a story, that's what's rich and juicy about it, right? There's all kinds of interesting stuff. The era that we're talking about, 71 to 74, when the Grateful Dead movie was filmed, the reason Mickey Hart's not in the band is his father embezzled all the band's money in, you know, right. 1970, 71. He took a leave. <laughs> so he took a leave of absence. And to me, I like that era of the band, not because I have anything against Mickey, who is an amazing musician and amazing, just, yeah. I mean, space now is amazing. My God, all because of Mickey, really. Yeah. yeah. But, you know the space that's created in the band when there's just one drummer to me is what really allows the music of this specific era to, to take off in the right way. Cause Bill is someone I have really, really come to appreciate retroactively. Like, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you I think you're just focused so much on Jerry, Jerry. Right. Cause but, he's such, he's such a, um, well, he's Jerry. Know. I mean, he, he is that guy. He's got, he's arguably he's, one of the four or five greatest melodic, musicians America's produced. I mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, Bradford Marsalis talks about this. He's just oh, like, yeah. I mean, he is just a monster melodic musician. Monster. I mean, the songs that he and Robert Hunter wrote, I mean, those are oh. forever. You know, it's a catalog, oh. like a Dylan catalog, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it's up, it's up there with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why I said as a band, I don't think yeah. any band can in American history can touch them. I just think they're right. Um, did you read, by the way, just to go back to the Mickey Hart kind of thing, you know, my recollection of the movie when I saw it first was that Mickey sort of shows up halfway through and finishes out the thing. But in right. fact, that's not what happened. Um, he's sort of tucked in at the end. And I, re- and I read an account in Dennis McNally's book where basically the road crew went to Mickey and said, you know, you have to, like, they basically kidnapped him, brought him <laughs> to the venue. And he wasn't even going to, he was still not going to play. And they were like, you're fucking going out there, dude. And they like, cause they were like, cause this, there was this sort of end of the era kind of thing happening where they were all just burnt to a crisp, I think. Um, um, and which makes this an interesting documentary to think about in terms of like how it compares to the last waltz. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
you know, like what is, you know, what's going on? What are they trying to say? I mean, they're so mm. different, you know, and like you said, because this movie really is about like the fans and the community that they have, which is what is so, um, what I think drives them so much. This the ability that they, and, and why they're, they're financially still successful is because mm-hmm. they have this whole like, like, you know, organism that they can just tap into at any point in time. Um, and they have these great songs and, and it's, it, I totally agree with you. It is wonderful to see that they have been able to find a whole new iteration with John Mayer mm-hmm. that works. It's not, mm-hmm. they, you can't fake it. Like it's not. No, you can't. Like, like um, as, as a, as a test. So interestingly enough, Michael, who my, my Velvet mm-hmm. Underground is a huge deadhead now, loves the dead. Um, <laughs> See, proving I, the, proving the psychological connection that we think has always existed right. there. Yep. Right, exactly. And he's a 77 Cornell guy, but, um, but uh, I sent him a clip of that soldier, uh, soldier field Althea where John Mayer's playing. Mm. Like the, I don't know what year it was two years yes. ago. And it's, yep. I mean, it's so amazing. blistering. Amazing. So, like, I mean, and he just, he's like, yeah, you got to give it up. That's, that's a legit group, you mm-hmm. know, like that, that group's playing. Um, yep. And I think that's the documentary really shows that coreness that, that they always can dip into somehow um, that is their saving grace that makes the, you know, and that they've got the catalog, but so many bands struggle to be able to, you know, keep, keep the, the clarity to find their way into it. They get lost in so many other nutty aspects of life. And, and that, and it, yeah. And, you know, they, well, two points, two points I think are interesting from what you said in the first contrasting sort of the last waltz with the Grateful Dead movie is interesting because the difference is the last waltz was declaratively the end right. of the band. And right. in, in, in saying such and in setting it up such, I think it has to, of course, imbue the proceedings with a certain vibe, which in the case of that film really worked and was captured brilliantly by Scorsese. In the case of the Grateful Dead movie, I think it was the kind of unspoken, it wasn't spoken that this might be the end of the band, but I think if you read about it, that's what many people in and around the band sort of felt was going to happen. It just felt like they'd been doing this consistently from without a break from what, 1967 through 1974. Yeah, And when you're talking about without a break, you're talking about the Grateful Dead played a lot of shows. So they're on the road constantly. Uh, they're living the lifestyle, you know? And so I think that the unspoken nature that this might be the end probably lent things just that weird off-kilterness that I think you can feel it when you, when you know like what a good show is. Yeah. And you can feel that vibe. Um, but also interestingly, given the nature that they were going to film these four or five nights and then cobble together kind of the best. It also sort of took away the very thing I think they thought they were going to capture, which is the experience of a show. Like it feels when you watch it because the songs are not organized in the way they would be organized. If you saw the show in real time, like it's, There right. are weird, there are weird placements that, that wouldn't happen in the, in, right. the, in the way that the show typically unfolds between a first set and a second set. Right. And so it feels, it doesn't have the feeling of the very thing yeah. they were setting out to try and catch because they were taking, right. you know, the best of what they had over the four or five nights. And then that, that sense of like getting Mickey to show back up, I think he just showed up at the final night 
And you right. know, it's all the typical drama of like, he doesn't want to do it. He has to be asked, you yeah, know, yeah. Kreutzmann's kind of like, yeah, you know, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. You know, the Grateful Dead, despite its hippie peace, love and granola image was actually much more uh, North. What's the term? A North Bay, Oakland. Like it's, it's a tough hell's angel biker culture. Yeah, East Bay, the East Bay, Greece, the whole East town. Bay. Yeah. It, it's more that vibe than this hate Ashbury kind of, Hey man, everything's cool. Like, well, you know, the Grateful Dead have long had this pretty, there's a dark side to it. And there's a, there's a, like especially a, the crew. The crew. Especially the crew. Yeah, the crew all come from that. And the Hells and Angels all- relationship has gone on forever. So nobody wants to admit right. that they maybe need each other in quite the way that that it came came about. So, yeah, I think that's where, where the Mickey thing came about to the end. And then, you know, the other thing in terms of the band now, which is remarkable to me, is, <laughs> you know, I remember it, it, it's still so weird to me to think, and for a lot of deadheads, like, that John Mayer, like, and what John Mayer meant to people in our era became this person who somehow got into the band. And not only, you know, like, okay, maybe that could happen through some weird confluence of events, right? But that he turned out to be totally the right person to elevate and re-energize things in the way that, that I don't want to put it all on him, but it's it's definitely his music. The level of his musicianship is something that Bob Weir, you know, noted and said, "I'm standing next to a fire breather again," because when Jerry was at his best, you know, you had better be on point because there were going to be musical questions lobbed at you, and you better have answers, uh, otherwise, you know, he's going to steamroll over you. And that kind of back and forth, and the conversation that's going on within the framework of the songs now is mind blowing to me. And a lot of people still, I don't say about a lot. I think the, the majority of the fans accept and have come to be blown away by, you know, some of these concerts that dead and company have performed, which are truly astounding and continue to be so, but there are some holdouts uh, out there who don't, don't get on board or let their, let that same attitude you were talking about from high school, kind of like what you think you hate getting in the way of what you might like. Uh, he presents a barrier of entry for some of those people. But I think all you have to do is listen and look at the guitar playing, uh, which again, you know, the ability now, the way they're filming concerts, you know, and I myself am such a, a ridiculous consumer of the couch tour pass from Nugs TV, you know, and you can watch uh, in great, great close-up detail what's going on, the interplay of the music. And you can see visually things that we never got to see uh, back in the eighties. So it, it's, it's just funny that, you know, yet again, I'm sitting in my office right now and I'm looking at, you know, six framed posters of dead and company concerts that I've been to since, you know, 2016. And it still is alive, you know, and these artifacts like the movie, uh, are part of this journey. Like they say, the long, strange trip that it's been. So that's why when we were talking about what are we going to do as a movie? And we kind of settled on this. I had also just recently rewatched the Sunshine Daydream concert film because that Vanita Oregon show that we're talking about has an amazing documentary too, which is even features even more completely just blitzed out, stoned off their rocker, tripping out of their minds, hippies in the woods in Oregon. It's insane. (laughs) It's like, like, 
He's like, I'm going to say naked, like 25% of the audience. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. There's a naked guy on a pole behind the band that will freak you out. And uh, it, it's such an amazing film. It's, it's amazing that that guy is not some sort of meme or has like, cause he is, it is so insane when you see the movie. Well, I, this can't be true because it's too good to be true, but somebody online posited because there is a, um, when you get the, uh, when you buy the, the DVD CD set of the sunshine daydream concert that the dead released a few years ago, uh, it comes with the documentary. And then it also comes with a, a more recent featurette that sort of, features new interviews uh, with some of the pranksters and other people that were involved in the concert. And the rumor is that they tracked the guy down who's a naked guy with long hair, kind of looks like, kind of looks like Dwayne and Greg Allman combined into one person. If he were naked and grooving on a 30 foot telephone pole uh, behind the Grateful Dead at a benefit concert in Vinita, Oregon in 1972, apparently they tracked the guy down and he's supposedly a arch conservative real estate dealer in South Florida and didn't want to have anything to do with the thing. And that just has the ring of one of those stories that just is too good to be true, but I think we all like it to be true. So let's pretend that it is. Oh my God. Um, let's talk a little bit about how this is a seventies, a seventies document too. Um, in our childhood, mm. uh, so the movie opens with this insane, um, oh yeah, animation sequence, which, which is pretty good actually in its weirdness. You know, kind of like I, I kind of enjoyed it, but it reminded me how much, um, in the seventies, drugs had become <laughs> this whole thing <laughs> in our culture. I mean, in mainstream culture, like, you know, yes. people's parents were smoking marijuana, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, and that there became this industry of creating trippy stuff mm-hmm. um, for the mainstream. Like they, I mean, like to me, that interlude almost was like, here, here's the drug part of the movie, you know, yes. drugs, you know, <laughs> like, um, uh, which was so, I think of as obligatory as, you know, for how, pop music and that stuff was being consumed at that time that there were, you know, like thought, you know, like all like, you know, like that in that era that became such a huge part of it. And I just, it was amazing to see like that, that decision got made. Um, and, um, I don't know. Did you, did you have that vibe? And then just, there's some other 70s stuff in the movie, but like that. Well, was- I mean the, the, yeah, the animation sequence, which I think is notable for ending up costing more than the entire budget of the film altogether for one because it's 1974 so all of the animation is frame by frame cell by cell hand-drawn animation it took forever to accomplish because they have these very involved sequences uh, by Gary Gutierrez who pioneered all these techniques in order to do so and of course that's what Jerry was mostly into uh, was you know making sure that this was going to be a mind-blowing experience because that was really first and foremost was we gotta this has to be uh, this has to be a singular experience. The plan for the film, as we briefly mentioned, was since the band was going to go on a touring hiatus, they were going to tour the movie. Right. And it wasn't going to be a movie that was just going to be released in, in theaters and let play. It was going to have an audio component so that the sound was up to the standard of what the wall of sound was. Not that they were going to erect a wall of sound in every theater, but they were going to tour it with specific speaker configurations and an audio engineer as if it was a live concert so that 
the experience of going to see this was very different than seeing a movie because movie audio at the time was not good enough to right. provide the experience they wanted. So there's that kind of, you can already see that as a boondoggle to think like, okay, you're going to four wall the movie around the country followed by a tractor trailer with speakers and an audio engineer. Okay. All right. Maybe like that might've worked as a plan if they were off the road and the heads needed something to go do. But of course they, they filmed this so completely um, with so many cameras that I think once Jerry got into the edit room, they brought aboard an editor who said, you know, they had something like 150,000 feet of film to sync up uh, with the audio that had been recorded. And that alone, this is before you even start cutting it down into a movie, took them five or six months to accomplish because they had so much footage. And, and so this is the funny part. And Jerry just was almost broken by that. Like he just hated it. Oh, yeah. Like well, I think I don't think he understood the process of sitting in an edit room frame right. by frame, <laughs> especially in those days of, of uh, linear editing. We don't we don't have avid. Not, nothing is digitized. Um, decisions that you make have consequences, and to redo them or reverse them is a whole different thing. So, I don't think Jerry intended to spend the entire three years largely right. in the edit room uh, right. Right. and the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, this is also the finances of the band at the time were always precarious. Um, and even though we're just talking about a couple of hundred thousand dollars initially in the cost of the film, that was almost enough to completely bankrupt the entire band and the entire organization, which is right. why they had to take out the loans and sign the record contract in order to get enough money to complete this project. And I thought Bill Kreutzman had a really interesting uh, quote that I read uh, about this because they're kind of acknowledging that, um, you know, within the band, there could be some tensions because this was Jerry's thing, right? right? And Jerry's the leader of the Grateful Dead, but that's all well and good until you're talking about three, $400,000 in, you know, 1974, right. 75, 76 dollars. And uh, maybe some in the band, some in the organization would have cut the cord and just said, okay, that's crazy boondoggle, let's get away from that. But Kreutzmann has a really good quote. I just want to read it. He says, uh, producing that thing really consumed Jerry's time on a day-to-day -day basis throughout the hiatus. What are you going to do in that situation? You could say, okay, you can have this much money. And if the thing's not complete, who cares? Wrap it up. Or are you going to find more money for it and let it become a really worthy project that your band leader and good friend really believes in? As Jerry had known all along, it captured and defined our identity since it had the visual element to go along with the music, the animation to go along with the interviews and the B-roll that really showed viewers with their own eyes, the circus, that was a Grateful Dead show in San Francisco, circa 1974. That part of the movie is what ate up the biggest slice of the budget and took the most amount of work, the animated sequence, but it's my favorite part. So, you know, this is part of the grand experiment of like, hey man, that's Jerry's trip, but we got to support him. Uh, and so they did. And so it, the, the thing didn't come out until the hiatus was over in 1977, by which time, you know, the dead were now ready to tour, uh, Terrapin Station and other new work that kind of had moved on from where they were in 1974 when they filmed the very thing. So it became an artifact that never quite did it. I don't think they didn't end up touring it the way they had intended. Uh, it played briefly in movie theaters without the whole audio component that they were talking about and that they recorded it for. Right. And it had, it really, you know, isn't until more recently that I think it's been able to be seen and heard in the way that they intended. Right. So it's a hilarious artifact for all of that stuff. Um, but particularly of the scene itself. And one of the things I wanted to mention 
you know, in my group of deadheads growing up in the mid eighties, we always considered ourselves kind of cynical deadheads. We were not peace, love and happiness people. You know, we were sarcastic and sardonic and to our detriment, really, there was just our, our youthful naivete thinking that our defensiveness was something other than fear of vulnerability, but that's how we posed. But I can remember even in that era, uh, there are so many archetypes, even though it's not our era, that we would mock at dead shows who are represented in the Grateful Dead movie. Most particularly, there's what they call the rail rider. So rail riders are people who have to be right up front on the rail in front of the stage. That's their defining personality is that I got there first and I occupied this space. And also therefore certainly in this movie knows that they're going to be on camera. And currently now where everything is filmed and, and streamed, that's also a thing where those people are kind of putting on a show. There's a bit of ego involved, I think most people would say charitably yeah. for people who take it upon themselves to make sure that they are in the front row, which otherwise is not, not sound-wise the best place to experience the concert from. But that's a thing. And there's the Uber rail rider in this film is the guy in the overalls with the ponytail who is very ostentatiously singing along with every single word and every single nuance and every little pep of his step is exactly in time with the rhythm of the song. And he's performing for the camera. He's literally looking right at the camera and he's doing so. And he's the type of fan that I think annoys the shit out of a lot of people who maybe were casual fans uh, or even real fans because he's kind of given us a bad name, even though, hey, he's having his own trip, he's having his own fun, and he's obviously probably on about 30,000 micrograms of LSD at the time, so let's give him a break. Right, exactly. (laughs) It's funny, because I clued in on the women and the whole mild lady kind of aspect of, like, like the East Bay, you know, biker guy, and, like, the women are these accoutrements and Mm -hmm. and, um, no bras, and, like, the whole, like, there's this, I mean, and they the twirling on, and, the, and there's this weird kind of fakey, it seemed fake to me, like of the women on the stage dancing and the fire breather guy. Like, that was yeah. weird in the movie. Like, uh, maybe. Well, the fire breather guy is, um, I don't know if it's Parrish or Ramrod. Right. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a famous dead, you know, crew member who's doing these little, these fireballs. Again, yeah, for, for I guess, the ostentatious purpose of like, Hey, I'm part of the show too, right? right. It's a little bit too much of that. No, a, a, a lot too much. But but the the whole, like you said, like um, like the crowd becomes this character in the movie, and um, or the observation of the crowd becomes yeah, yes, yes. where you're kind of like and you and it, which is exactly how it's funny when I was at dead shows, the two I went to, that's sort of the fun of it in some ways is sort of imagining. You know, like, how did you show up here, you know, in that particular garb, in yes. that particular homemade vehicle, you know, and you're selling those particular art items, you know, to make your way. <laughs> well, you, you've put your thumb exactly on the nail here in why my concert experiences of the era were inevitably less than they could have been. Because if you are an observant, aware person and you are in a heightened state, at a Grateful Dead or Pink Floyd concert of the mid eighties. There's too much stimulation going on. There's too many freaks. There's too much weird shit happening. I was always found it very hard to lose myself 
in the music in the concert environment at that point. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, because there's just too many weird fucking freaks and characters. And as a group of people, we always appreciated freaks and characters and we're seeking right. them out. And so in that environment, especially when the scene, you know, started to get a little sleazy and seedy with touch of gray era popularity in right. the 90s, everything changed and became, you know, it got darker again because the crowds were such uh, an oppressive force and towns were really being yep. left in a terrible state with garbage and, uh, you know, drugs and the nitrous mafia was coming in and, you know, things were getting dark in the lot, which it always has been that. I've never thought that that's a pure part of the experience. It's never been part of it that I particularly enjoy. I like strolling through it and checking it out, but there's as much sadness in the lot life as yes. there is, you that, know, freedom. That was, that was shocking to me. Yeah. That, you know, like you can, well, it's a collector of lost souls. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a circus you can join and you can, right. you know, listen, you can, you can, you can drive from show to show. And if you have a good enough hustle with whatever you're making or selling, uh, that's your living. And yeah. it's, you know, it's not a place where, but it's like you know, carnies though. It's exactly, it's, it's a it's, little bit, it's a little sleazy. Yeah. Yes. It's Depending not, on the town too. Yeah. It's not like, um, you know, well, I don't know. I was going to say Jack Kerouac on the road or something. It's not like, you know, it's not this sort of spiritual journey. It feels kind of uh, a little bit more uh, off the rails than that to me, you know? Or, yeah, and, but what's, what's funny is now, uh, you know, I go to Dead & Company shows now um, and I go with a friend of mine, you know, and uh, we are very clear-minded these days. You know, yeah, we're yeah. not under the influence and we are able to we are really able to focus on the music and listen to it. And, and now, you know, it, what we're annoyed at is all the annoying drunk people around us who are like leaning into us or, you know, hey, man, you know, like doing exactly what we were probably doing in 19, you know, 84, 85, 86. So right. it's just funny how uh, you become old man shaking fist at sky and ending up thinking to yourself, well, you know, the couch tour is a much superior experience to the live uh, experience. Sometimes I just think it's just, you're just, like you said, clear and you're, yeah. you're experiencing this really um, profound group of people. Yes. I mean, I yes. mean, the, the dead really is this profound thing. I mean, if I want anyone to come away from this is that I think there is value there for anybody. I mean, mm -hmm. I love it that my daughter, who is a very typical American teen of mm -hmm. today, you, you listen to her, um, you know, her, her playlist and mm -hmm. Brown Eyed Woman will come up and she loves that mm -hmm. song. It's a yeah. great song. Like she, it is. You know, and like, and that, that band has, and so she's, she's, you know, obviously she's a deadhead, but she certainly likes the dead um, because they're good. And, um, and you're there to partake in of that greatness that they have always had inside them. It's not always present. And like, yeah, so you're, you know, your clarity is just, you know, amazing on that just to be able to you know, deal with that. And then, like you said, like, there's these people there that are part of the sideshow that come with that thing. Um, um, I yeah, and if, if people are, if people want to check this out and are not, um, not sort of into the, the, the dead themselves, uh, I would really encourage people to check out the nationals grateful dead tribute set, which is called day of the dead. Uh, and you can, you can stream this anywhere. It's, uh, it's got about 60 songs on it and it's got covers from everyone from, the War on Drugs, The National, Wilco, Flaming Lips, Courtney Love, 
right. uh, Kurt Vile, Jay Maskus, Jenny Lewis, TV on the radio, uh, Jim James, Bonnie Prince, Billy Grizzly Bear, you know, a who's who of kind of current and historical contemporary coolness in rock and listen to those interpretations of some of these, these songs, because that's to me is the thing I just keep coming back to is about the songs. Yep. It's about the body of work that predominantly Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter, his most frequent co-writer came up with. I think that to me is the most timeless aspect of the, the catalog. And certainly Bob Weir and John Perry Barlow's contributions are as you know, they're significant. I don't think they're quite as significant, but they they are part of the canon as well. Yeah, yeah. And and when you hear them played by contemporary artists who get what we're talking about, right? Who aren't hung up on the oh, that's not cool now, or you know, that wasn't cool when I was a teenager, or that was cool when I was a teenager, so I'm against it. They're they're there because I think they appreciate as musicians what's going on in the songs themselves. Well, yeah. And when you hear them that way, it's just like kind of hearing them, you know, played by Dead and Company now, which does have more in common with the Grateful Dead of the era I'm talking about. But some of yeah. these interpretations on this album, you know, have nothing to do with that kind of style of improvisational music whatsoever, but they hold up because the song structure is so freaking good. And these people were geniuses. I really, really think that like that part of them, it's just so underappreciated right yet. Yeah, still, it's... Yeah. That has not, I mean, I think that like the Nationals move and other and other people is starting to kind of, uh, I mean, if you put that, if you stack up the songs, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it, the list is just, you know, enormous. Yeah. You put them up against Credence and you put them up against sure. Simon Garfunkel and all the other bands that were sort of famous in the era, you know, who wrote, you know, it's just, it's it, like stack is so much higher mm-hmm. than them. Um, and it's also not, it's topically more often than not timeless so that, you know, a song like Brown Eyed Women could be a song from the band. It could be a Dylan song. It could be a folk song from the twenties. It could be a a song from the Americana movement in the nineties. It could be a song of today. And I think that's the real genius of Hunter Garcia compositions to me is they have that timelessness uh, it, almost to the point where it's almost kind of funny and jarring when I songs that I love that are more Bob Weir songs, you know, that have contemporary references in them sometimes freak me out when I hear them. Right. Um, you right. know, because it's, it's, it's kind of jarring to not be in the, the world that the songs occupy, which, which is a timelessness. And I think that's a real gift as a songwriter to be able to not have your work sort of be pigeonholed just just purely in lyrical content, you know, uh, not necessarily talking about the instrumentation because that can vary, but just the lyrical content not being of any particular era or time. Yeah, yeah. No, I is, mean, they were, they were writing these cosmic um, cowboy songs, you know, and really they're talking about America and... And they're folky, you know. They come from this folk tradition, so they're right, they're using those those really strong s- structures of songs. Mm-hmm. But then they, you know, electrified and and psychedelicized it. It's it's just a remarkable achievement um, what they were able to accomplish with that. Um, you know, in that short span when they were really writing a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite sort of like the song that you think is like the the real embodiment <laughs> of all of that. Like oh, man. Is, oh, man, this song is so great. It's so hard to say. I mean, there are so many, you know. Um, 
Is there I don't one? Think there's, well, there's no, there's no other act. There's no other musical act whose catalog I know as intimately as well yeah. as I do the Grateful Dead, where, you know, um, it, there are songs for every moment. There are songs for every part of the day. There are songs for every experience you go through. Um, I think that the things that I gravitate to the most nowadays would be, uh, again, in the iteration of Dead and Company, where I'm experiencing the music kind of anew through a superlative musicianship edition of guitar, keyboards, and bass that's kind of as on point as any musicianship has ever been in the band. So I think that the uh, the jams portion, you know, the the songs that include improvisational extended sections and sequences are mind-blowing now. But in a, in a way, like that's kind of what I was always there for. Yeah. Was the structure which then, you know, was going to lead off into the unknown. And as Mickey Hart would say, hopefully we achieve liftoff. Uh, and, you know, you know it when you experience it. More often than not now, those songs that include those sections achieve a liftoff that is visible even to the guys on stage, an impressive accomplishment. But I've really come to appreciate like the first set songs as much, if not even more. Uh, so the Althea's, the Bertha's, the, um, the Brown Eyed Women, the, 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 the songs that traditionally have been first set songs that don't necessarily yeah. jump off into all of that are also played with such kind of delicacy and attention to detail now um, that there isn't one song to answer your question. No, there isn't one song, but there are songs that always, that always offer something new. I mean, and that's the thing about the music, right? That's why we listen to the shows because on any given night, it can be this song that ends up moving the needle. Um, So I, I think I've become more, as I listen now, I'm more, I pay more attention to kind of the overall quality of the show. Right, right. And I tend to gravitate to the shows that have something really unique going for them. And sometimes that can just simply be that I was there, not necessarily that the show itself right. was, was particularly insane. But for example, uh, The Dead played a show in Miami and it was just after the... Uh, school shooting that occurred in South Florida Mm. and all of the kids, uh, a lot of the surviving kids from the school who have become pretty well-known activists in the aftermath. This is the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas school shooting. And a lot of the kids, David Hogg and a lot of the other kids who've become pretty well-known activists subsequent, they were there invited by the band uh, backstage and to see the show. And the show opened up with Shakedown Street And, you know, this is a song that for its kind of disco origins, you know, includes lyrics that ended up really speaking to the moment, you know, don't tell me this town ain't got no heart. It it, it was, it's it's a show that was infused from the very first moments through its entirety with this feeling of, I will survive, of we are together. And it, it is a really unique and special concert that was, imbued with this energy of these kids who've lived through unimaginable, but unfortunately in America, increasingly the everyday and you could feel it, you know, and that's, that's, that's kind of the, the amazing thing about the band is it is, it is susceptible 
to the stuff that as fans, I think we like to think the band is susceptible to, right? And you could feel it in that. So I have that framed poster because to me, that was one of the first shows of Dead & Company that really, really blew me away and took on another whole proportion and really elevated the band from that point forward. So now it's about those shows that I'm interested in. Right, got it. But I listen to everything. I, I, I watch and or listen to everything that that iteration of the band does. Yeah, and I continue to get all of the, the Dave's picks, uh, CDs and DVDs because, uh, the archivist Dave Lemieux is, yeah. is my kind of guy. He likes my era. He has an eye for the type of show that I respond to. And he's releasing a sequence of just really incredible shows from all eras, but he really, you can tell his heart lies in this kind of era of the 70s. Yeah, they just released that whole Pacific Northwest 73, 74. Which is amazing. I have that. That's amazing. Yeah, great art on that too. I have all the posters from all those shows. Oh, I know, your poster collection. Oh my God. I was going to ask you one other thing though too here. In the movie, this was a a moment of profound like, what? Um, Which was Ned Lanigan? Yes. Seastones. Okay, raise your hand if anyone's listened to that friggin' record. Um, oh, I mean, any any deadhead worth their salt has at least tried to get through it and pretend uh, they like it. <laughs> um, but two, like, I honestly did not. I mean, like, I I guess in retrospect, I knew about Sea Stones because I was a record mm-hmm. collector, and that was what kind of an expensive record to collect. But but like, I didn't know that guy actually played shows with the band, like, and that he's just this, like, like you're panning through the movie mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there's this guy and you can't hear him because they, they screwed up the recording. So you're <laughs> like, what the fuck is this ghost on the stage? You know, like how weird is that? Um, it's amazing. Two, um, Donna, we have not talked about Donna Jean Godchow because this is important. <laughs> Do- well, I was I mean, raised that if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Okay, but let's, but, but, okay, we don't need to get into disparagement. <laughs> but you have to admit that Jerry somehow managed to keep the, the parts, the controversial, let's call them, parts of mm-hmm. her tenure somehow at bay. Like she's not a, a an over, you know, like he, like yeah. she's, he fits into the world well yeah. in, in, the, in the documentary, which was kind of. Um, That's true. That's true. Uh, and I okay, that those was, are those are both good points. So that, that's his Ned, his Scorsese um, his Scorsese moment of directing. <laughs> I have to say, like, to be able to achieve that, that's a big thing. You know, he pulled a great performance out of her. Well, I love to take Ned Logan first. So yeah, there was an era of the Dead where Ned Log. So Phil Lesh, the bass player of the Grateful Dead, is also a student of right. contemporary composers and right. contemporary classical music, and had a penchant for people like Ned Logan, who was sort of a, uh, he was, he was a far ahead of his time synthesizer and polyphonic music guy who composed music that Phil Lesh really dug and was part of the dead scene for a bit. And he had these really complicated for their time, uh, instrumental arrays. And it's a really hilarious, uh, I love this thing at Wikipedia where they sometimes give you this very dry description of the reason for something. And then in that dry description is contained multitudes. This is an example of that. So the reason that Ned Logan kind of appears like a ghost-like figure, I think in Morning Dew and another song, you sort of see this other guy on stage and you're wondering what the hell's going on. Play music. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're kind of like, who is that guy? Uh, <laughs> 
It's what? because he had such an intensely complicated synthesizer array. And he also, at the time, had a preference for playing through the vocal system component of the wall of sound, which, as we talked about, was you know right. a 60-foot-tall array of you know, 2,000 individual speakers with a, with an insane degree of control over, you know, every aspect of the, the music. But he liked the way the, the synthesizers sounded through the vocal component, which I think in Wikipedia they say considered it was to be the, that was the best part of the wall of sound was the way it processed vocals. So it says his preference for playing through the powerful vocal system often resulted in the group's sound crew neglecting to switch between his quadraphonic input and the vocal input during long sequences. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, the crew was getting stoned and they forgot to switch Ned Login on. So therefore, he wasn't recorded. Right. <laughs> For four nights. For four nights. <laughs> four nights. It just kind of happened that way. And now apparently there's some sort of falling out between Ned Login and the Grateful Dead. And he, I think subsequent... It right. says in here that he asked Jerry to kind of cut him out of the movie. Uh, so yeah. maybe that happened in the intervening years. So that's why Ned doesn't really show up there. But there is a famous show uh, where they do perform Sea Stones, I think it's in entirety, uh, yeah. if you really wanted to listen to that. So that exists there. And as for Donna, yes, you touch upon, I guess, something that has to be mentioned. I'm trying to think of, it'd be interesting to try and describe it for people who aren't fans of the band. But uh, you know, the spinal tap trope of the exploding drummers and having, you know, drummers right. die over and over right. again kind of comes, not kind of, comes directly from yeah. the Grateful Dead's seeming inability to maintain a keyboard player for any significant number of years because in the life cycle of the band, they've gone through Pigpen and TC and... Keith Godcho, uh, Brent, um, and those people all died, unfortunately, many of them through drug and alcohol-related mishaps. So the keyboard position has always been a difficult one, but it's also always been, as I said before, such an intricate and intrinsic part of the magic of the band when it works. And I think the very notable times that it's worked, certainly the Pigpen era, he brought something with his Farfisa organ and his kind of biker blues orientation that was very different. And uh, Keith Godshow, uh was a more traditional player who was playing you know, a big grand piano and other keyboards on stage. And he joined the band and his wife, Donna, was a singer. And the looseness of the vibe around the dead kind of was such that I think, you know, Hey, Keith's in the band. I guess his old lady could be in the band too. I mean, I'm not really sure there was much more thought to it than that put into it. Right. And so Donna joined the band and Donna's, Donna's harmony. Cause Keith, I don't really, I can't think of Keith singing. He must've, he must've maybe sung some backing vocals, but well, it wasn't until Brent joined the band that, that high vocal harmony that Donna provided on stage complemented Jerry and Bobby's singing so well. And that's really what the highlight of the, the Brent era is, is that his high lonesome wail of a voice was so hauntingly perfect in the mix. But before that, yes, you had Donna. I was, I was joking to my friend Buck the other day that, you know, the Grateful Dead world being what it is, you'll meet people whose specific thing, right? gets really minute. So you can meet someone like me. It's like, my thing is 1971 to 1974. That's my thing, right? Yeah. You can meet people who it's like, Phil Lesh is their thing. You know, Bob Weir's my thing. 
Donna, you know, Donna, I don't think I've ever met anyone where, where Donna no. is their, their entry point into the band. And she's much maligned for that because there are like emotional moments where music and songs are achieving kind of uh, peaks. And then Donna comes in with an attempted bluesy wail that unfortunately more often than not turns into a caterwaul. I don't understand how someone who made a living out of muscle <laughs> shoals, the greatest R&B yeah. studio ever. I mean, not yeah. even close to anything else, you know, where you had to be the top of the top of the top to be able to hang with those, that crew. Mm-hmm. And she, I'm like, she was like, cause she can literally not sing in tune. It's well, just, I don't think she was a harmony singer in that. Like nowadays the harmonies are so good because you have, you know, you have Shimenti, Mayer, and O'Teal singing real right. harmonies with real attention to the music. And of course, they can probably hear themselves a hell of a lot better than Donna could, to be fair to Donna at the time. Okay. But I also think that the improvisational nature of the music makes it difficult to be a backing singer or a harmony, a harmonizing right. singer sometimes. Although think- Brent, Brent did that very successfully himself while also playing keyboard. So it is possible. I, I just think it has to do with, you know, it was an era... Keith was in the band, so Donna was in the band, and they found a place for her to try and do uh, the thing that she does, which is not always terrible, but it's kind of a running thing, yes. <laughs> no, it's just, it was just, I, I, I really give Jerry so much credit for... <laughs> for the three years he spent editing her out of the Grateful Dead movie. <laughs> no, because he puts her in the place where she does actually kind She does of, work in places, yes. In the band, her, that voice in playing works, um, uh, you know, which actually you know, does in Vanita too, by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah. I guess that's right. You know, I, I think it's, I think, I think when you can mix it appropriately, um, it works, but yeah, it, it's one of the funny kind of historical footnotes of the band. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> um, uh, what was the, Oh, there was some other stuff I wanted to ask you. Oh, well, and just like some of the, yeah, some of the, the performances, like the space in there and oh, there's some stuff that's just like, Whoa, like you really needed. Well, yeah. here's what I'm going to ask you as a technical thing. As a, are you interested when you watch a documentary, do you want to see a movie that has full versions or like extra? Oh, yeah. I, I don't like when they interrupt the songs, but again, that's like, you know, I don't think you can make these movies for people like me because what we want is what I get on a live stream from a dead and company show now. Right. I want the attention to sonic fidelity and detail and visual fidelity that I can get. So when I watch this, I was just watching a little bit before there's one of the excellent, uh, one of the excellent songs on the Grateful Dead movie is the eyes of the world, right? It's a really sweet, sweet version. Yeah, yeah. But they interrupt it to go like, I don't know, watch people pour beer and have gnat sound from people ordering hot dogs. And right. you're kind of like, no, like that's not what I want to go see, but that's not what the movie is there for. Yeah. So yeah. But if you made a movie to appeal to people like me, you know, it's not a movie. That's just a live stream of a concert. Right. It's a different right. thing. Um, I did have to say, I did remark on the 60 cent hot dogs and, yes. the, um, and the union counter guys who all look yes. like they were in Chanana. So good. So good. <laughs> like they're all like, 
like like the guy who's shot at, like his brother is in Shauna or oh, something. Oh, absolutely. He's got the grease back hair. Totally. You know? like, oh, it's just like, this is, you know, which is like, you know, a great, I just love that about this. I show. love that stuff. I love looking at the deadheads lined up at the hot dog counter. I don't know why. It just makes me laugh every time. Like, you know, sure, they're counter they're counterculture, but at the same time, they're lining up for a hot dog and a beer. <laughs> and one guy, one guy's all one guy's all stressed out because he's being filmed, right? It's just fucked up though. This fucking film man make cash off everybody. This uh, this is the biggest pile of shit I've ever seen. The dad ever do. You're oh, you're nuts, man. This film is you just... You have five What's your name? I'll take your address. My name is John Williams. John Williams? Yeah. Sam Hughes. Hi, Sam. How are you doing? I will not be at that movie. It's always good to see a real dead yeah, why are you so uptight? You feel you're being exploited? Yes. Are, in what way? Who is going to get royalties? Are, it's like this, you, if this little thing, which there's you, no way it's going to be in a movie. Do you, but if this was here and there were five million people watching this movie all over the world. Do you? And I was being in the movie right here at my time. Like this is ten minutes of my time saying this is all in the movie. Well, wait, These people are being charged. Do I get royalties? Sam, Would I? Any chance? Excuse me, Sam. Royal royal St. Stephen! Crazy. Um, <laughs> and he's all aggrieved because right. it's like that's not what he's there for man you know and and like he didn't agree to be filmed and then one guy's like well technically you did because they posted a sign that said if you stepped into the venue you're going to be filmed <laughs> right i mean yeah it's great for all that stuff is amazing and all the right. just there's a lot of really dilated pupils if you know what i mean <laughs> right right and then what was the guy the um bill graham's doorman uh who was oh, so yeah. great he was Been great there. And Bill Graham. And Bill Graham. The footage of Bill Graham is great too. I mean, I think Bill oh. Graham is such a fascinating figure that to see him, I always kind of stop for a minute because he's so larger than life and um, has been gone for so long, but was such a towering figure in music and in the Grateful Dead that when you see him in these moments, you get a you get a little snapshot of the bigness of his personality and the complications and contradictions of him as a person. So I think his appearances are kind of cool. And, and one of the things I was struck by about him, you know, he is a equal, mm-hmm. you know, to the rest of those groups from San Francisco. Like he, he was oh, yeah. just as much as part of the success and the creation of everything as they were. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, notably, he was totally pissed about the movie and was like, mm-hmm. one friggin' night and leave everyone else alone for the rest of the nights. Um, you know, well, he's probably pissed about it because he wasn't particularly benefiting from it. And, and, it his, and it was his venue. <laughs> and it was his venue. And it was, you know, like, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, he was, like you said, he's this figure and like, you know, he's a loving figure, but he's also kind of this like, you know. He's like a, um, he's like Peter Grant, you know, in Zeppelin, you know, you had yeah, this colorful hard, manager, yeah. hard ass motherfucker. And I think what's great about guys like that is fans of music, fans of the seventies, you know, we want to think, we want to think the best of all this stuff, but yeah, you're right that without a hard nosed motherfucker like Bill Graham, none of this probably would have happened. Hero. Bill just, you know, saw the brass ring and just completely drove the ship. Mm-hmm. 
and made way for so many of these bands. I mean, there's a whole, you could do a great documentary, I think, about all the business people who actually saved the lives. I mean, there's a one good one about um, the guy who's Alice Cooper's uh, manager. um, Oh, is that the Shep Gordon one? Yeah, that's pretty good. But I think there's, you know, Dylan has one with Jeffrey Rosen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, how how can't if you read the... um if you read the book that you just referenced before, uh, David, I uh, can't remember the name of the, the, the authorized biography that the dead put out after Jerry's oh, death. Dennis McNally's, yeah, Dennis yeah. McNally's book. Um, Hal Kant, who is, who is the dead's lawyer for really, I think the right. entirety of their life until maybe he got sick of it, but he very crucially wasn't an employee. And that ended up being a very important difference because throughout this book and many books that you read about the dead, Hal Kant is the one guy who always has his finger on exactly what should happen. And he's, he was masterful at being heard, but not being an oppressive force. And more often than not, he was proved to be correct, even though the band frequently did not take his advice. But yeah. he's the kind of person who, in the, in the, you know, even though he's not in the film business, he's the type of person who's intelligent enough when they're talking about this film He's the one who picks up in a production meeting that uh, Leon Gast, who uh, went on to direct many notable uh, documentaries and was initially hired to direct the Grateful Dead movie, is explaining in a meeting how many camera units they're going to be using. How Kant is the guy that's doing math on the back of an envelope and figuring out film magazine capacity. And he's the one who kind of, before they even started shooting an inch of film said, you know, you're going to end up with about 150,000 feet of film, which is a lot of film. And I don't think that your budget is going to even cover the cost of developing the film itself, let alone then edit a feature film. Right. And everyone, of course, is like, ah, don't worry. We don't worry about that. You know, we'll figure that out as we go. But, right. you know, he's the kind of guy that knew that detail before the band did and frequently was, was raising it. So, he's one of the great joys of, I like reading the books and, and sort of just seeing that there was this person who always kind of was the person they should have been listening to. But of course that's not how it works. No, I mean, but so many bands, so many bands that were able to hang in and be successful. Oh, I had that guy. Look at Bruce Springsteen. I mean, without John Landau, he's not around today. You know, Neil Young had Elliot Roberts. um, and they were, you know, they were the no guys, but they were mm-hmm. also the guys who were you know, in it for the artist, not necessarily for the money per se. I mean, they were, they were great with the money, but they weren't in there to, you know, steal everything. They were, well, I they think were they loved these, the music too, first. Yeah. And well, I don't know about the guy, um, the Stones guy, the Prince, Runley, oh, Prince Rupert. Guy, Rupert. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if he was a music dude. Um, those kind of people are a huge part of all of this, you know, that you never see really, but mm-hmm. um you do see the, the way you see it, of course, in our society who wants to kind of demonize and vilify women, you see it in the closeness of a John and Yoko or, you know, a, a Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney. Like, I think that male figures like that who are pulled in so many directions gravitate both towards relationships like that with women who interestingly always tend to come into their life after they've become John Lennon or Paul McCartney or, you know, maybe Bob Dylan or Jerry Garcia, right? Like it's, it's a relationship where maybe that person is very good at handling and entering into a very complicated and big life 
but also kind of tells that person the truth maybe, uh, or just becomes a constant presence in a way that no one else can really be. But I think it also does happen, like you're saying, with manager figures. And if they are lucky enough to find one who is not like an Alan Klein, who is going to, yes, do all these positive things for your career, but on the other side, he's going to kind of end up in control of everything and you're not going to really own what you thought you owned. There's that risky version of it. And then there's maybe some of these other versions where, where the relationship is long lasting and symbiotic and not parasitic. And I think so much of the music business is parasitic in nature and so much of the touring life can lend itself to this darkness and negativity. And I think more people recently are speaking more towards an understanding of the downfall of that life instead of glorifying it. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, Justin Bieber was doing a big global tour and canceled like the last part of it because he just mentally, you know, he was, he was in some kind of dangerous place with whatever it was. And I remember John Mayer came out and said, you know, good for him. Good for him to say, I need to stop doing this right now because it's so hard when you have a multi-million or billion dollar money machine that relies upon you getting up and going on stage every night for two or three hours to say, I need to stop, you know, can feel so complicated because if you stop, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people whose livelihoods depend on you doing that very thing. And then of course you have your relationship with the fans and disappointing them. So you can see how the roller coaster becomes very hard to get off. And many, many people have died as a result of that. I mean, Jerry ultimately died as a result of that in the big picture. I just heard Bob Weir talking about how it was an interview and the guy asked him um, about the kind of touch of gray era. And he goes, you know, it was really interesting. Of course, it took one of us out. And he said, Mm -hmm. he was like, you know, like he said, like, Brent had never really experienced that, like, you know, that level of, of notoriety mm-hmm. and just wiped him out. And I always think back to um, Neil Young about this because Neil was super, super smart. He bought Broken Arrow Ranch, which was a mm-hmm. place he could just go and be completely off the grid mm-hmm. and just recharge himself, get away from all the maddening crowds and everything. Mm-hmm. And he did that and that saved his life. And I remember, you know, he, he was referenced in Kurt Cobain's um, uh, suicide note. And, you know, he's, and he sort of commented like, man, I wish that guy had, had taken a break, like had, Mm -hmm. you know, had walked away for a couple of years. Yeah. Unplugged because, you know, that was probably as what was much as anything killed Kurt too, really. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was just like that, that first crush of Mm -hmm. all the attention, all the Mm -hmm. ego crazy stuff, all the, you know, the appetites just open up and, you know, um, yeah. And so, and it's like the crucial thing for everybody who, who, who gets that is to find that refuge. Or the well, I think they know, they know so much more now about that, you know, and yeah. I think that you can, certainly if you can tour at a level where you can intelligently set it up. Right? Zeppelin, Zeppelin mode, mode. Like there's that mode. And then there are like road rats like Bob Weir and Bob Dylan who have figured out how to live on the bus. You know, oh, yeah. Bob, both Bobs famously have these buses that are their refuge and prefer to walk off the stage, avoid the, you know, backstage scene, get onto their bus, 
literally within 30 seconds to a minute, you know, they are enveloped in their own, their own situation, right? Yeah. Their own decor, their own solitude, their own music. And the bus pulls out, right? And it, and it heads to the next show overnight and they wake up and then they're where they need to be. Right. And if you look at Bob Weir, hilariously over the last couple of years, his workout videos on Facebook have become a whole thing because right. he's in better shape now at 72 or 74 than he's ever been in his life before. Right. And I think I also equate that to John Mayer and the energy that he's put into Dead & Company, which is like, man, I got to make sure I'm fit enough to do this and take care of this. And Bob's singing and playing has gotten better over the last few years of John Mayer being in Dead & Company as a result. So it's amazing to see these guys taking care of themselves in the way that I think they need to, because that lifestyle has got to be so brutal to endure. I mean, I can barely stand to go away from home for two or three days. <laughs> I know. It's, it's amazing. Like, when you're, like, I mean, when you're young, like it will kill you. It will kill you. Right. Well, I mean, for a living, will kill you. Can you imagine right now someone says to you, hey, why don't you move away from your home for four years and go live with perfect strangers and <laughs> like, like what we did, you know, as young men, like, you know, we would never, ever sign up for that now. Never. Um, it, it would just be like. Yeah. And some of these tours you know, you're talking about, I mean, these global tours, you know, I think I was looking at one that, um, who's the guy that played the Super Bowl a few years ago, multi-instrumentalist. Um, Oh God, too many dead shows. I can't oh, remember Bruno names. Mars. Bruno Mars. I was looking at the the numbers on his <laughs> this world tour he was on. Oh, it was literally a three four year tour with very few breaks. Yeah, um, because that's that's what he had to do. I guess like that's that's the gig, right? Is we're going to play this music all over the world that wants us, and it's a short lived life, and we're going to try and build. Yeah. This is, you know, we have to build on this now in order to ha hopefully have a foundation that will take care of us in the years to go. And I was just looking at that schedule and just thinking, wow, it, it's amazing he's alive and functional. And maybe for a lot of these, these people, you know, the pandemic ends up being maybe the best thing that could have happened, even though some of them, some notable people like David Crosby, you know, was very public about having to sell his song catalog because he couldn't make money playing concerts. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and that, that's the precariousness as you think about 50 years in the business and one year or one, nine months off the road tips your finances into dire yeah. straits. It's pretty scary. I mean, that shows you that the, the life is not all that it's financially cracked up to be all the time. So, Right, yeah. Um, I was going to say, if you want to see a really incredible tour schedule, and I know this because I, I know a promoter from here who told me that he was going to book the first show he had he had a deposit in first show of the 69 fall tour for the stones it was going to be important they were going to open here and mm. it got swooped in and they played it um uh the 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 school at um colorado springs colorado but I, so i went to go look to say oh wait you know because he was sort of <laughs> you know, so, I, so i went and looked at the tour schedule for that thing mm -hmm. it is literally like 34 days ending i think with altamont um, and there is yeah. like one day off and they played two shows, <laughs> they played two shows a day for like yeah. say a quarter of those things. It's nuts. It's the That's crazy. nuts. I mean, and like, they, I don't know, I guess they were probably flying at that point, but like, I, I mean, and you know, Oh my God. I mean, I'm just like, why would you do like, why, why? Well, nobody that? knew better. Nobody knew better then, you know, I mean, you hadn't, you hadn't yeah, killed all the people that it would kill. I mean, it literally... 
you know, became a death machine and look at, you know, yeah, Cobain. I mean, if you, if you achieve that level of, of fame and, and the ability to draw that type of a crowd, I I think you have to be very, very careful. I look at somebody like Post Malone and I just think, ah, I, I hope this guy survives through this because he doesn't look well every time I see him. And his whole, his whole vibe of like, I've got the red solo cup and the innumerable cigarettes. Like that's not a recipe for longevity in the business. And he, he has talent, but being caught up in that image and that lifestyle, I think we all know a little bit better now. I always kind of joke, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, the smoking gun website used to famously have probably still does. You could look at tour riders, you know, for what bands request backstage. And I think not too long ago, I remember looking at, there was one for Dead and & Company. And it's like, you know, Bob Weir has to have this type of, of steamed salmon, uh, you know, not farmed. John Mayer has like, you know, broccoli and asparagus and, you know, this protein. And it's like, it's so, it's so not what you think like rock and roll life is. It's like they're eating healthy foods and, you know, Bob Weir is swinging his mace and doing his, his workouts on Facebook before the thing. It's like, man, that, that makes me so happy to see that, you know, that there's a chance that it doesn't have to end the way it did uh, for people like Jerry or Brent or Keith or, or, or Kurt, you know, and the list goes on and on, right? It's, those are all unnecessary deaths, you know, really. Yeah. yeah they're, I mean, they, and it's, and aided and embedded. Aided and embedded. By yeah. the, 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 the circumstances yeah. of their art, you know, like that it yes. really was part and parcel of how that whole, um, system was is was operating you know it's well, so on that note great note to end on Ooh, there we go death yes no i do have to go all right buddy listen great talking to you i love that we we veered off into so many far-ranging and interesting things i'm going to enjoy assembling and putting this together and um Did we talk about great, <laughs> what's that Did we talk about the movie <laughs> i think we talked about the movie somewhere in there we did Right, right. It'll be, it'll be like it'll be like my my mini version of Jerry spending three years combing say, through the tapes. <laughs> you're like you've got it all sorted out. Um, well, this was great. I really appreciate it. I love what you've been doing. Um, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Uh, it, it definitely has a voice that is really welcome. Oh, thank so. you, thank you. And, that you know, means a lot to hear. If you want to go do some other stuff eventually, I would be happy. Oh, absolutely. It. Yeah, let's keep hitting me with the movies. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll do something again soon for sure. Thank you so much for joining me. It was fun. Take care. All right, buddy. Take care. Bye.